0: Welcome back to Innocence Advocate Stephen's Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode nine, Mistrial to Conviction. In the last episode, I went over what happened during Steven's interrogation and the unfortunate news that none of his time at police headquarters was recorded. This episode, we're going to look at what happened leading up to Steven's first trial being declared a mistrial and why my father spent over a year in correspondence with the New York State Grievance Committee. I was not present in the courtroom on the day of closing arguments, but when I read over those words in the transcript, I was transported back to the courtroom to a time when I was there. And I remember sitting in the intimidating pews, staring at the back of Stephen's head, his balding head and long straggly hair, which he refused to cut. Before the proceedings began for the day, he looked back at us and gave a smile, and I let out a breath I didn't even know I was holding. As I was sitting in the courtroom, I was trying to pay close attention to everything that was taking place, and as I was doing so, I thought about my friends back at school. I wondered what they would think knowing where I was, what I was doing, and why I was sitting in the courtroom to begin with. My body tensed with a mixture of secrets and shame, emotions that felt like betrayal to Stephen's innocence. But I also remember that same day, Steven's lawyer sharing with me my first legal lesson during one of the trial breaks. We all went into an office at the courthouse where he explained to me that circumstantial evidence did not prove fact on its own, that it relied on inferences from other circumstances that are closely related. And then he told me about the evidence the prosecution thought that they had against Stephen. And he smiled when he told me, see, this is all circumstantial. I was confident in thinking that if all that he said was true, there would be no way for Stephen to be found guilty because the inferences drawn from the evidence were weak. On November 17, 2003, Stephen arrived at a packed courthouse for closing arguments and summations. Nobody was prepared for the deliberations to last seven days, from November 17th to November 25th. Throughout the course of those deliberations, the jurors sent out several notes a day asking to review pieces of evidence, listen to readbacks of testimony, and seek clarification from the judge's three pages of instructions on reaching a verdict. On November 20th, 2003, the four persons sent a note to the judge indicating that they had yet to be able to reach a unanimous decision. The judge instructed them to go home, rest, and come back ready the next day for a special set of instructions. The following morning, before the judge even gave those special instructions to the jurors, the attorneys were asked to meet in chambers. At this time, juror number four was brought in to explain that they wanted to step away from the deliberations. The juror was having a hard time focusing, processing the testimony readbacks, and participating in the deliberations because their mother had fallen down and was unwell. This personal distraction was discussed in length to determine how much the juror had missed and whether or not they were fit to still be on the jury. The juror was given the choice to leave, but opted to stay with the other jury members in the hopes that a verdict would soon come. So the juror continued to deliberate that day. Unfortunately, juror number four's mother passed away, and they were relieved of duty to attend the funeral and be with their family. Another meeting was held to discuss the procedure for introducing an alternate juror into the deliberations, which needed to come with Stephen's written consent. The following note was sent by Stephen and read on the record by his lawyer. I, Stephen Manolis, hereby consent to the substitution of alternate juror number one for juror number four, whose mother passed away this weekend. Please extend my sincere condolences to juror number four. Because all of the testimony readbacks requested by the jurors during the deliberation are read out loud in the courtroom and the alternate jurors are present for those readings, all parties involved believed that alternate juror one was sufficiently prepared to continue deliberating in juror number four's place. In reading the notes that the jurors sent out, there was clearly one area they were contemplating in their deliberations that matched my own confusion, and that was the interrogation. One of the notes reads, are the statements made by Kyle or Stephen to police considered evidence or hearsay? They were clearly confused as to whether or not they could simply take the detective's words as proof. Another note read, Doyle admitted to using deception. We were told we could not consider evidence obtained through deception. Is there any part of Doyle's testimony that we cannot consider? Please clarify the judge's instruction on this area. The judge then reread the instructions pertaining to deception and the voluntariness of statements made when deception is in use. I didn't really necessarily understand how the judge was trying to say that it was okay that he used deception because it wasn't really deception. It felt very confusing for me, which meant it was probably confusing for the jurors as well. These notes emphasized that some of the jurors struggled to comprehend the validity of what happened during Stephen's interrogations. On November 25th, 2003, the four four-person sent a note to the judge that read, we are hopelessly deadlocked. The judge called all of the jurors back into the courtroom, and he had no choice at this point in time to officially relieve them of their service, thus marking the end of Stephen's trial in a mistrial by Hong jury. There was confusion about what this meant, but hope because it wasn't a guilty verdict. The mistrial needed to be discussed with Stephen's lawyer, but first a conversation regarding bail took place. Stephen's lawyer argued that he had been without bail for two years and reiterated the collateral that my grandparents were able to produce for the bail. The prosecutor argued that bail should remain at $5 million. The judge disagreed, but then set the bail at $500,000 cash only. My grandparents were not able to produce $500,000 in cash So Stephen remained behind bars until the start of his second trial. A mistrial was not the conclusion we had envisioned, but my family was hopeful, hopeful that another trial would surely demonstrate Stephen's innocence. Stephen would return to court for a second trial in 2004. The second trial was essentially a restatement of everything that had happened during the first trial. No new evidence was revealed. Some areas were emphasized. Other areas were left out completely. My uncle John and both of my grandparents had the opportunity to testify on May 17th, 2004, after the people had rested. They did not testify during the first trial. Unfortunately, my father never had the chance to swear to tell the whole truth in his brother's defense. My father did not take the stand in 2004 because he was threatened by the prosecutor, John Collins. My father's threat, combined with the unprofessional manner in which Mr. Collins took a note written between Stephen and his lawyer off the defense table and out of the courtroom, appalled my father to the point where he spent over a year in back and forth correspondence and investigations with the New York State Grievance Committee. My father had no less than 15 issues he wanted to testify to. To date, that information is sitting in a folder with the rest of Stephen's trial documents. During the trial, my father kept what he called an arm's length and guarded relationship with Mr. Collins. My father is a respectful man by nature, but he was also aware of his position to protect his brother and be courteous to the opponent. The following excerpt was written by my father and originally sent to Judge Mullen and then later added as an exhibit to his official complaint to the grievance committee. This incident occurred at approximately 12 10 p.m. on Friday, April 30th, 2004. Mr. Soshnick, my father, John Manolis, my mother, Marie Manolis, my brother, John Manolis, and myself rode the elevator from the third floor of the courthouse to the first floor. Once there, Mr. Soshnick realized that he had forgotten a box of legal material in Judge Mullen's courtroom. As a result, both my brother, John, and myself accompanied Mr. Soshnick back to the third floor and to the vicinity of Judge Mullen's courtroom. My parents remained on the first floor. Immediately after Mr. Soshnick entered the courtroom, Mr. John Collins exited the courtroom. He observed me standing next to a large column in the hallway and approached me. As he approached, he had his head tilted to one side with a look on his face as if he wanted to ask me a question. My brother stood behind me several feet away. Mr. Collins then asked me, are you going to testify in this case? I said, not to my knowledge, I wasn't planning on it. He then said, is your employer aware of the incident involving probation? I said, do you mean the arrest and all that? He said, yes. I said no, having full knowledge that I did not have to disclose the contents of a sealed record to anyone. He started to turn and walk away, and I said, and it's going to stay that way, right? And he said, as long as you don't testify. One question during proceedings, Mr. Collins would respond to the judge that he received that arrest information about my father, not from a sealed record, but from a paragraph written into a subpoena document regarding Stevens' arrest in 1984. Interestingly, the sealed record was sent to Mr. Soshnik from the DA's office when he requested all files at the beginning of the first trial. So Mr. Collins would have had that sealed record in his possession. But even if he didn't read the actual information, and he did find it in a different manner, he still used that information to intimidate my father so that he would not testify. Later, Judge Mullen would call my father on the phone and assure him that his job would not be impacted but my father was not able to believe that he would be protected from such an action regardless of the judge's statements. He had to make a familial choice, stand up for his brother and speak his piece in his defense or protect his credibility and the work he had already poured into the justice system and thereby continue to financially support his wife and children. He chose the latter, but he should never have been put in a situation to have to choose. What was the prosecutor's motivation in threatening my father? At the time of Stephen's trial, My father had been working in New York State law enforcement for 13 years. Not only was he familiar with the justice system overall, but he was the chief of internal affairs in his department. His job was to investigate and interview officers and members of the public regarding officer misconduct. He worked every day to determine the truth of allegations of illegal or unethical behavior by officers. That was not the person the prosecution wanted on the stand, especially in defense of Stephen, and certainly not after several points of police misconduct were brought forth in trial. My father not only worked in internal affairs, but he also wrote the policies and procedures for DNA sampling for criminal identification. His work became adopted as the model for New York State, as detailed in a letter by the New York State Commission of Correction. My father was able to offer expertise and insight in a general sense, but also to factors that plagued Stevens' case specifically, DNA and officer misconduct. In my father's response to Mr. Collins through the grievance committee process, he wrote, in addition to all the above, Mr. Collins committed an offense much worse than any previously mentioned. I cannot express in words the dilemma he put my family and myself in when, figuratively speaking, he placed my brother in one corner and myself in another, stood in the middle, and used the influence of his position to determine our destinies by his very actions. In a very real sense, he did all in his power to severely restrict and limit my opportunity and my ability to testify on behalf of my brother by the consequences he would imply would follow if I did. He put my family and my livelihood on the line. In any event, I was aware of my brother's innocence. I knew that the first trial ended in a hung jury and I was equipped with the sure knowledge that no new evidence presented itself in the second trial. As a result, I felt reasonably sure that the same decision would occur. I now realized that something more was going to be needed, among other things, my testimony, to counter the base theatrics and denigration of my parents' religious beliefs, which were displayed by Mr. Collins in his summation. As a result, I now face a constant and unnecessary burden, a suffering and a pain that I must deal with every day until one day my brother may find exoneration. We may never understand the reasoning behind the prosecutor's actions, but on that same day, April 30th, 2004, just moments after this threat, Mr. Collins would be caught in another condemning action as told in my father's grievance report. He stated: Immediately after Mr. Collins started to walk away, Mr. Soschnick exited Judge Mullen's courtroom, having been briefed by Mr. Schick of the Legal Aid Society that Mr. Collins had retrieved a note from the defense table and exited the courtroom with it. Mr. Soschnick called out to Mr. Collins and stated that he, Mr. Collins, had something that belonged to him and he wanted it back. Mr. Soschnick chastised him for taking the note off of the defense table, advising him that it was improper and wrong, and further, that he knew it was wrong. As he passed the note over to Mr. Soschnick from his right hand, Mr. Collins stated, "'I'll erase it from my memory.'" Mr. Collins would later tell the judge that he took the note in order to throw it in the trash so that the court officers would not be able to take it and read it. Why was he so untrusting of these court officers? If his intentions were truly to protect Stephen from having any of that information read by others, then he should have thrown it out in the courtroom garbage can before looking at it himself, but he did not do that. And he didn't just look at it and throw it away. He hid it in the palm of his hand, sandwiched between his briefcase handle. These actions filed by my father would not be the last time Mr. Collins displayed his character. These improper and deceiving maneuvers were also visible in his closing arguments just a few weeks later. During his closing statements, he not only criticized my grandfather personally for explaining the religious reasons as to why he would not lie for Stephen, but also the religious faith of anyone else in the courtroom when he said, we all know that religion is the last refuge of a scoundrel. And one of the last remarks Mr. Collins would make to the jurors was this. If you pictured anyone in your mind other than Stephen, let him go and send him back to the squalid room where they keep him. His remarks to the jury painted an image of a dirty and disgusting animal being held captive. His damning accusations voided the life that Stephen lived to the best of his ability despite his mental illness and my family's attempt to support him. My grandfather was so distraught by these comments that he gave a letter to Mr. Soshnik, Steven's lawyer, to bring to the judge the next day. The letter asked for an apology from Mr. Collins. Though the judge stated that he would not require Mr. Collins to apologize to the jury, he did make an overall general comment to the jury, reminding them that closing arguments were not fact. My father has expressed to me many times that from the start of the second trial, Stephen's lawyer was frustrated at the end of each day. He didn't understand what he could be doing differently the second time around. The second jury was subjected to the same laborious yet anticlimactic presentation of all the items collected. The witnesses were paraded in and out of the courtroom to be asked virtually the same questions. Everyone was drained. My family was mentally, emotionally, and financially exhausted. At the conclusion of Stephen's second trial, it had been three years since his arrest and eight years since the crime occurred but regardless of all the fatigued emotions, happiness still prevailed because May 19th, 2004 was going to be the day our family would be put back together. I envisioned this day playing out just like it did in the movies. The four person would stand while all the attendees held their breath. They would lift a piece of paper and state in a loud voice. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty of murder in the second degree, to which an audible release of air from our lungs would be followed by hugs and cries of celebration. May 19th was going to be a happy, be ending, and the world would finally know what we had already expressed to be true. Stephen was innocent. But on May 19, 2004, just two days before Stephen's 44th birthday, these devastating words became woven into the fabric of our family instead. How does the jury find the defendant, Stephen Manolis, as to count one, murder in the second degree? Guilty or not guilty? Juror number one responded, guilty nothing made sense i will never know the depths of grief my grandparents experienced in that exact moment hearing that word but i can imagine the unbearableness My father relayed to me the tension, the shock, and the instant flashbacks of everything that had happened prior, all crashing to the forefront in a matter of disbelieving seconds. My grandparents' thoughts went back to the judge's words while urging the first set of jurors forward in their deliberations. He said, there was no reason to think that another set of jurors would come to a different conclusion. So he told them to go back and try and reach a verdict, but that wasn't the case. Another set of 12 individuals did reach a different conclusion and their result was overwhelming in its finality. On June 22, 2004, Stephen was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in prison and a maximum of life the realization that steven was going to spend at least 25 years in prison was unthinkable to me when i learned the verdict i had this heaviness in my chest that i thought would never leave i was a teenager at the time and my mind just wasn't able to cope with what all of this meant what did this mean for steven what did this mean for my family i was really concerned about how he was going to survive in the midst of all those strangers in prison because my whole life i only knew him As this reclusive man who couldn't touch people, he couldn't talk to people, he couldn't even really be around people. And now here he was, he was going to be around thousands of incarcerated strangers. I thought surely he's going to die. He cannot handle this. And this is just coming from me and niece. I have no idea the impact that all of this had on Steven himself, what hearing guilty felt like in his mind or in his body, what this felt like for his parents. I just knew that my emotions were so strong But they were emotions i hadn't really experienced before i didn't even know how to label them or categorize them and so i felt like the best option was just to bottle this all up just try to put it aside and try to forget about it through conversation with my father and my grandparents i understood that stephen was angry that he was confused but that he also believed the verdict would be reversed again i'll never understand what any of this felt like for stephen i can't even begin to imagine But I still have that same hope that he carried all those years ago, hope that the verdict would be reversed. For years, my family has wondered, what was the difference between the two trials? How was no verdict reached in one trial and then guilty in another when there was no new evidence? The facts remained the same both times. No DNA evidence linked Stephen to the murder. No confession existed. No video or audio evidence of his five-hour interrogation was produced. No fingerprints were gathered. No evidence linked Stephen to the Scarabelli home. No evidence suggested that Stephen and Kristen ever even shared one word with each other. And at least two other suspects we learned about should have been investigated further. So what happened? My father remembers one female juror approaching him and the rest of the family after the first trial was deemed a mistrial by hung jury. And she told him and the rest of the family about the hostile situation within the deliberation room. She told them that the jurors who would not switch to a guilty verdict were berated, insulted, continually yelled at, but they wouldn't budge. I'm grateful for those jurors, those who understood the judge's instructions But it did make me stop and wonder, how are these verdicts reached? Are they the product of analyzed decisions? Is it aggression? Is it a mixture of the two? I've never been on jury duty, so I can't speak from experience. I respect jurors and the hard work and sacrifice it takes to sit on a jury, especially one as lengthy and serious as Stevens. But at the end of the day, they are human. They can make mistakes and they can act on emotions. What factors are they facing personally that may impact the decisions they make? Think back to juror number four, who was struggling with the health of their mother, which caused them to consider their ability to be a productive part of the deliberations. How much personal struggle impacts the jurors in ways that we cannot see? What the first set of jurors were not able to conclude after seven days, the second set of jurors concluded in only seven hours. The National Center for State Courts conducted a sampling of cases and found that 6% of cases taken to trial end in a mistrial. And this typically gives an advantage to the prosecution because they understand all of the moves from the defense and can work with that to help their case. In terms of Stevens' trial, everything was essentially the same. However, having read through the transcripts of both trials, I can tell just by the act of reading that the first trial was emotional and fiery. Stephen's lawyer used metaphors and analogies to emphasize his important points. He continually requested mistrial as significant issues presented themselves in the course of the trial. Whereas the second trial reads monotonous, it's lacking emotion and substance. The shock of new details emerging was gone because there were no new details. Additionally, Neither Detective Legeza nor Anton Chalinski testified in the second trial and both of them were vital to the defense, a confession and acts of perjury. Because the second trial lacked an emotion, I think that's why Mr. Collins' theatrics at the end of the closing argument stood out all the more. So the second trial is actually occurring over Mother's Day. So as I'm reading it, the amount of times that it was said that it was this exact day eight years ago. So there's already some added in emotion because of that reference to Mother's Day over and over. But then Mr. Collins had the jurors close their eyes while he described the murder as he interpreted it, and then he read Stephen's statements again as he interpreted them. And then when he had the jurors open their eyes, there was a photo of Kristen put up on an easel after her death. Did this final, emotional, not evidentiary act sway the jurors' perception of the facts? On our first trip back to Long Island to visit my grandparents after Stephen's conviction, I opened the door to Stephen's room for the first time in my life without doing it in secret. I paused instinctively and listened, but he didn't run after me, shooing me out of the doorway. What I saw in his room was the same as it had always been, an image that I can still picture clearly to this day. But although it looked the same, I knew it was not the same. I looked in his room, I looked in his sanctuary, and it finally hit me. If he had just acted like everyone else, looked like everyone else, and talked like everyone else, he would still be running after me. But he was not like everyone else, and that had been the problem all along. At this point in time, at the recording of this podcast, Stephen is still in prison. He is still suffering from the effects of mental illness, misconduct, and ill investigation. He still does not like to be touched and lives in a reclusive manner. In fact, he does not use the communal showers in prison, but instead, he's brought a bucket of hot water each day to bathe himself with a washcloth and towel. For the first few years of Stephen's sentence, we would visit him quite often. He was actually placed in a correctional facility only 25 minutes from my childhood home. I have vivid memories of seeing him walk into the visitation room and smiling, and I would feel so grateful that we could bring a smile to his face. But I also remember the stress of figuring out which days in the alphabetical order the prison used matched our personal schedules. I remember the fear of messing up any of the rules for visiting an inmate. I can still sense the stares of other people waiting and the quizzical looks of the officers checking me in. As I reflect back on those times, I can hear the buzzing and clanking of each metal door being opened while we were escorted to the visitation room. I was so worried about setting off the metal detectors and I had bought a special bra with no underwire for the sole purpose of visiting Stephen, I always went to visit Stephen with my father and my brother and sister would come with us as many times as they could as well. And we would spend as much time as possible talking and eating vending machine pizza, popcorn and juice. The food was disgusting, but we wanted to spoil Stephen and give him whatever he wanted from the machines. Because of his reclusive lifestyle, Stephen never ate with us at home. That was the first time I ever sat down and ate with my uncle in prison. I actually don't remember him eating the food, though. I think I may have done most of the eating to fill in the gaps of conversation because I was always unsure of what to say. It would be the same thing as when he would call my grandparents home when we were visiting and you're so excited initially, but then it's like, what do I say to them? I don't want to make them feel bad. I don't want to tell them what we're doing because I don't want them to feel sad that they're not there, or that they're missing out. And especially with someone like Stephen with his mental illness, there was always this fear of don't say too much because we want to make sure that whatever we're telling him, he can handle. So I always felt, yeah, a little unsure of what to even say. Aside from these visits, there were two other occasions in which I would see Stephen in person, and that was the deaths of both of my grandparents. Stephen was gratefully escorted to both funerals. Though he was handcuffed and shackled, he still hesitantly accepted the embraces of family members he had not associated with in over 30 years. I remember being so nervous to witness him in that setting. I was nervous for how he would react to the people around him and the acknowledgement of his parents' death. He didn't hardly speak. He mostly sat quietly. I will never understand the pain of losing a parent while being incarcerated." Stephen looked after his parents in their older age. They would call out to him for assistance, and he helped them with chores around the house. He loved his parents. Their deaths and the years of stress they possessed from Stephen's arrest to conviction weighed heavy on him. Eventually, Stephen was transferred to a facility farther from our home. I went away to college, married, started having a family. But throughout all of these transitions, my father and I have continued to write Stephen sporadically, but he never writes back. I have pleaded with him in both serious and humorous ways to respond to me, but each request goes unanswered in letter form. However, he does call my Uncle John every day for his phone call, and he relays to him messages to send back to us. Most of these messages are simple acknowledgments of the letters sent and drawings from my kids. Stephen's story has been discussed in depth within just my family for years. We simply don't understand what the detectives were thinking, what possessed the judge to make his decisions, and how the jury came to their conclusion. However, talking as a family, it was never enough, and at several points in my life, I would debate writing Stephen's story, but it never seemed like the right time but I think now is the perfect time. And that is why I need you, the listener, to consider a piece of the judge's final instructions to the jury. He said, If an inference of guilt is also consistent with an inference of innocence, then by law, innocence must be weighted in the defendant's favor. This means that if a piece of evidence points to guilt, but it can also point toward innocence, then move forward with innocence. Consider the moments in this story that stopped you, that made you pause, that had you questioning what was happening and how it was possible. Those moments of questioning and disbelief are the seeds of reasonable doubt. Go back through the story, put yourself in a position of a juror and answer this question. Does reasonable doubt exist in this case? If you think so, then let's reclaim the prosecutor's condemning comments in a more positive manner. If you can picture anyone other than Stephen committing this crime, then let him go and send him back to his freedom. We will be waiting for him there. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.